go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to be with you all uh, this week. Sorry that, that I missed uh, and was out um, last Sunday, but, but sometimes as a pastor, God needs you to go to San Diego in January. And when God calls me to go to San Diego in January, I'm not going to question God in those moments. I'm going to go. And uh, so, I, so I obeyed, but, but, but all joking aside, it was a really great weekend. Um, I, along with, with Jeff Boss, got to spend a weekend with uh, our global partner, the China Partnership. So it was a chance to meet and spend time with Chinese pastors. It was a really fruitful time, and I'm looking forward to unpacking that more, um, kind of what we learned and what, what that was about um, um, in the future, as well as, in, as unpacking a couple of the, the fun stories um, that we learned from, from last week. Uh, but for this morning, let's jump into Matthew 5 together, continue our series, Upside Down Kingdom, uh, looking at the life of Christ in the Gospel of, of Matthew. So let's pray and ask for God's help. God, I confess that so often I live life with my circumstances front and center, and that God, so much of what I, I think of my day or my, my world or my, my life, God, it's, it's all bound up in what, what I'm facing, what I'm going through. And so I pray in this moment now, as we open your word, God, would you... Would you remove those things from the front and center of my vision? Not not because they don't matter, um, but because, God, you you are what matters above everything else. And, God, only you can make sense of the mess and the frustrations and the burdens on my heart. So, God, we put you before ourselves now, front and centered. You, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who never grows faint and does not grow weary, the one who's unsear- whose understanding is unsearchable. The one who gives might, gives strength to those who are weak. God, it is you that we need to see above all else this morning. Would you make yourself clear, known, reveal yourself to us, God, we ask. For the glory of your son Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I've said this before, so sorry for the reputation, but, but every time I get on an airplane, I think I'm going to die. So getting on an airplane this week, yet again, I began to think, okay, is this it? This is, do we go down? And thankfully, right before I got on the airplane this week, actually, I saw a, a video of a, of a plane crashing. It was really encouraging uh, to watch and to see right before I got on an airplane. But, but it's, in some ways, it's really neurotic and crazy. Well, it, it's, it's not in some ways. It is really neurotic and crazy. Like, I really think I'm going to die. But, but it's also really healthy in some ways. Like, I consider what, what I've done in my life, right? Like, how am I leaving things with my wife, with my kids? What do they think of me, right? Would they miss me if I was gone? So that, that part's healthy. And, and, and in studying, actually writing this sermon on an airplane, however many thousands of feet up in the air, I realize there's, there's another question I have to, have to ask in light of Matthew 5. Not just will my wife, my kids, my family miss me, right, if, if, I, if I was gone, but... Would my community miss me? Would Shawnee, Miriam, the town I live in, would they miss me? Would my neighbors miss me if I was gone? For those of you who go to school, would your classmates? Right? I, mean, I think we so often think of our families and our immediate uh, relatives as those who, with whom we're supposed to make a difference, but this text broadens that circle out for us. And this is where it gets interesting to me, because depending on what church you attend, the, the, the church gives very different answers on how Christians should relate to their culture, right? And even maybe if you go to a church, the church itself will give you two wildly different answers about how you should relate to the culture in which you live. 
For example, my, my sister lives in New York City, and, and I was visiting her one, uh, one time, and I got off the plane, I'm in LaGuardia, and there's a group of Christians on a mission trip, and they all have bright orange shirts that say, that say J.C. Hearts NY, right? Jesus loves New York City. But if you know anything about New Yorkers, that may be the worst way to approach New Yorkers to tell them that Jesus loves you, is in bright, uh, bright orange matching t-shirts, right? But, but hey, listen, that's a way to relate to culture is, is through matching magenta t-shirts, or, or think of, of my time in, or when I think of my time in, in, in Indiana University in campus ministry. Now we, we wanted to bless students during finals week one, one year, so we decided we'd bake them cookies. Um, in IU, they just had a deal. They put all the religious people together, and so they put us in the place. They put all the religious people together. And so there we were with our cookies and bottle of water right next to a guy protesting with really graphic pictures. Right? Cookies or graphic pictures. Those are two different ways of relating to culture right next to each other. Or growing up in, in the town I grew up in, I remember being at my church the Sunday before school started, and there was a woman who got up, she was a homeschooling mom, and, and she got up and she advocated for homeschool, but then she, she sort of moved on and began to talk about how evil and bad and, and terrible the public schools were, and how God was removed and there's no prayer in the public schools anymore. And what's interesting about that is the next person who got up and spoke in that church service was the superintendent of our public school. Right? It's like, who, who put this service together? Like, this doesn't make any sense, right? So even you go to the same church, and depending on who you ask, they'll give you wildly different answers about how Christians are supposed to relate to non-Christians, to the world. So what does Jesus want from us here, right? Matching t-shirts, cookies. How are we supposed to relate to the world in which we live? How are we supposed to relate to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our community? And maybe if you're not a Christian, you, you say, well, this, is, this has been a real problem for you with the church. You look at the way Christians have related to culture, right, and it's been very antagonistic or negative or, or angry to some respect, and you're like, dude, I could not be a Christian if that's how Christians think of the world around them. So what are we called to do? How are we called to live in the midst of, of this world? Well, I would say, I think all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, should, we should at least hear out what Jesus has had to say on this. Right, the Christians could take the Bible in a lot of different ways, but what has Jesus said with respect to how we as Christians are supposed to relate to our community, to our coworker, to our neighbors? And this, the passage we heard read, that's the, this is the passage Jesus answers that question for us. And it's interesting to me even how he approaches this question. He doesn't give a lot of commands. He actually starts by defining who Christians are. He gives us who our, what our identity is as Christians, and then from there he draws out implications. Right, so he tells who Christians are, and then he says, okay, because this is who you are, you can't do this, and you have to do this. Right, so that, that's how Jesus lays out the passage. That's how we'll look at the passage. Who Christians are, and therefore what that means we cannot be, and what that means we have to do. But the reality is, however you answer those questions, Jesus clearly expects Christians to be the sort of people who, if we were removed from our community, from our neighborhood, from our schools, from wherever you are, outside the, the walls of this, this church, he'd expect us to be the sort of people the community would miss, would notice if we were gone. So let's push in to this text with that in mind, starting with, with how Jesus defines our identity as, as Christians. And he gives two words, right? Where Christians are salt and they're light. What does that mean? 
Well, salt, in, in that day, it was not used the way we tend to use salt. So we use salt mostly as a seasoning to make our food taste better. But in that day, salt was primarily used as a preservative. That in the ancient world, you would, you would take salt, you would rub it into meat, and that would preserve the meat from decaying or spoiling or ruining. So Jesus is essentially saying here, listen, if you follow me, if you become my disciple, you'll, you'll be a, pres- a preservative force in society. Things that should decay, they won't. Things that, that should go ruined and should spoil, they won't because of your presence. Christians are to be salt. But then he says, well, you're the light of the world. And what Jesus is saying here, it's a little backwards, because in that day you wouldn't build a city on a hill. It was, it was very expensive, as well as the fact that you wanted to build cities close to a water supply, so down in a valley or where you could easily fortify yourself. You wouldn't build a city on a hill, but cities that rarely were, or that were built on hills, they would have been noticed and dramatically different, especially at night, right? With no electricity, the city on a hill whose oil lamps were lit could be seen from miles and miles away. It's a striking image he gives to what the church is supposed to be, the sort of place that could be seen from a long distance with its light. And using the light in the Bible as a metaphor is a very common Theme. And when light gets brought out, it tends, tends to mean one of two things. It tends to refer to either hope or to truth. And throughout the Bible, the world is depicted as, as a dark place. Right? And maybe if, if you're not a Christian, you think that sounds really pessimistic or negative or sort of, a sort of hopeless. But, but the point there isn't that Christians are the good people and everyone else are the bad people. Christians are the light and, and everyone else is the dark. That's not the point. The point is without God, if there is no God, this world's a very dark place, which I think is a pretty easy Thesis to defend. That if there is no God, this is a really dark place. With no hope. Now I could make that point, but, but Jim Carrey actually makes this point better than I do. That, that he came out to, uh, a week ago at the Golden Globes to deliver an award. It was his first public uh, appearance since his, his ex-girlfriend had, had committed suicide. And you could see sort of the brokenness, I think, even as he, as he gave... The speech, but what's interesting to me is he unpacks through comedy the darkness of the world you and I live in if there is, is no God. And so it's okay to laugh at this, but let's take a look together at what he, Jim Carrey, had to say. Thank you. I am two time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. 
but from our perspective, this is huge. I mean, that, behind the comedy, that's brutal truth. Right, and what he's saying, listen, even if you get everything you want in life, it'll never be enough. And even though at some point you'll come to see that, and you'll know, even if you got everything in life that you want, it'll never be enough. You still live in anxiety and fear and lose sleep trying to get the thing that you know will never fulfill you. And if that's not bad enough, then you, you bring in the reality, well, then if, if you blew up our universe, right, you realize we're in an insignificant corner of this place. The reality is all, everything you and I ever did will be forgotten and it won't matter what kind of person you did, what you did, what you accomplished, what you didn't do, whether you loved or hated, none of it will matter. I mean, that is dark. If there is no God, if there's no gospel. Which is why the, the, the Bible talks about the gospel as light. It talks about Christians as light. Because we say, listen, yes, that's true if there's no God, but that's not true. There's a better story in which to live. So when the Bible talks about light, it's, it talks about hope, but it also talks about truth. Right? That, that light sort of it invades darkness. And the thing about it like this, uh, that I still have a three-month-old at home or two-and-a-half-month-old at home, so that means my wife tends to get up and, and go nurse him in the middle of the night. And sometimes um, she'll open our door and turn a light on where where I sleep, like the light in the front room, like it perp- purposely or perfectly hits my face, right, which is really terrible for me. I know my wife has it, has it worse, but just, just relate to me for a minute. Um, it's really terrible to have that light, like, right in my face, right? It's annoying, right? And that's sort of the way that it's almost an annoyant for, a force, right? Truth is what, the light, is what light refers to. And, and what Jesus is saying here when he says we're to be a city on a hill, I, I think what he's saying is what Tim Keller has explained, which is that Christians are to be an alternate city. A ch- the church is to be an alternate city within the city. That we as Christ's community are to be an alternate Kansas, Kansas City within Kansas City. An alternate community within our community. You say, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that's the point of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll press into that, especially next week, where Jesus will begin to say, you've heard that it was said, right? The the world looks at at things like this, right? The world looks at sex a certain way. It looks at anger a certain way, money a certain way, retaliation. But then Jesus said, but you live in a different city. A city within the city, an alternate city. And he'll unpack for us just what that means, to have an alternate view of the world, to be a city on a hill. And to be light is to, be, to have hope and also to, to announce truth. But we do need to be very careful here because this can easily push into arrogance, pride, or self-righteous hypocrisy. Right? That we begin to think, hey, Christians are salt and light. We're the good people and everyone else is rotting meat and darkness and they're the bad people. Right? That's how it works. That's what Jesus is saying. But that's not a good take on this text. Because what's so interesting to me about this is Jesus doesn't come to these people and doesn't say to us through his words, hey, go and be salt or go and be light. These are not commands. These are not imperatives. He's actually saying to these people who are seeking to follow him, if you follow me, you are salt and you are light. You are this. This is who you are. This is your identity. Which frankly, is, is, it's, a bit of, it's a bit audacious and ridiculous. Right, that Jesus cannot say this because he's speaking to a morally superior group of people. He can't. And he's not saying that to the us as a church, that we're morally superior or better. That Jesus is not saying the church or Christians, anyone who follows him, they're not salt and light because of them. They're salt and light because of him. 
That Jesus in himself is salt and he is light. And if you take on his life, you become those things. And then remember back to Matthew 4 when Jesus went from town to town throughout Galilee, healing those who were sick, right? Taking care of, of things in the community that were breaking down and falling apart. Jesus went into those things and was salt, preserving that's okay. Jesus is salt. Or my favorite line, maybe in all of the first few chapters of Matthew, when after Jesus defend, defeats Satan in the wilderness through the temptation, where Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, where he says that to those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, right, the world Jim Carrey talked about, to those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christ is that light on which has dawned those of us who dwell in the shadow of death. Jesus is light. Jesus is salt. Which is why he can say to us, those of us who follow him, not that we, we can be salt or we should be salt in life, but we are. You take in his life and you are those things. It's the only reason you and I could be salt in light is if Christ himself has shown his light into our darkness or has brought his salt into the parts of our own lives that were healing or that were breaking down and decaying and he brought his healing. There's no space for arrogance, pride, or Christians having a better life or a better position. We are only salt and light because we are connected to and united with Christ. And the only reason you and I, right, should even want to be salt and light to our communities is because of the work Christ has done in our lives. We've seen the way he can heal. We've seen how, how much hope, how different his hope is and the stories we often tell ourselves of why we're here and what it means. And those of us who have, have seen Christ's light and have experienced his healing why would we not want to take that into our communities, into our neighborhoods? That this is who we are. Not just something we do. Which means that if we are salt and light, we Christians, we're preserving forces in our community. Right? If we're light, we have hope and truth. An alternate city. To where if we did disappear as, as Christians, as a church, our neighborhoods, our communities, our coworkers, our schools would miss us. So it's worth asking the question, if, if you disappeared, would your neighborhood miss you, your community? Because in Christ you are salt, you are light. That's who Christians are. But what does it mean, right? What are the implications from that? And a couple I want to draw out, starting with that, what that means we cannot be, right? It means, it means there's some lines drawn in the sand. So look at me at, at verse 13 where Jesus starts when he, he starts talking about us being salt. It says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. A salt that, that's not salty is, is actually worthless. That where Jesus lived, uh, the salt from there came from either salt marshes or, or the Dead Sea, and so that salt had many impurities to it. And so the real problem was if, when, you, when you worked salt into a meat or that impure salt into the meat, um, what would happen is, is after it, it broke down, it would actually make the meat taste worse. It would actually it would ruin the meat after it had been in for too long. And so the image that Jesus is, is using here is not just, hey, you're, you're sinning or you're wrong, but you're actually, you're not just not preserving the community, you're actually destroying it. Right? You, you need to be salt, you need to live into this identity. And so the first warning that's really baked in to what Jesus is saying here is that Christians, we cannot conform to the world. Right? If the church is just like the world, then there is no longer a preservative. We're worthless. We're just decaying along with the world in which we live. But there are two ways. This is a pretty strong warning from Jesus to us. 
Right, the first being that, that if, if you conform to the world, you just begin to love what, what, the, lo- what the world loves. And there are plenty of examples of this in the life of the church today, especially in our own context in America. I think of prosperity, gospels, or pr- prosperity gospel preachers who love money and greed so much. They, they speak into the greed and, and, and materialism of our culture just like the world in which we live. It's no different. They've conformed to the world. Or I think of some of the ma- biggest denominations 40 and 50 years ago who began saying, well, there's just certain core Christian doctrines you can't take seriously. You can't believe in this day and age. We need to, to give up those doctrines to relate more to the culture. And, and the culture thought that that related so well with the culture, they thought, we don't need you anymore. We don't need those churches. And so those churches today, you can drop by their empty buildings. That we as a church, if we conform to the world, we're worthless. We're of no help. But that's... That's a stronger warning than even what I just shared. Because my guess is most of us, we nod our heads to that, right? Yeah, of course, we can't conform to the world. If, if you're a Christian, come into the church. But if, I don't want us to miss the first two verses that I had us read as well. Verses 11 and 12, which set the context for what Jesus is about to say when he begins to push into us being salt and light, how we are to relate to our community. This is all one sermon. It all flows together. Here's where Jesus was before he talked about salt and light. Blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus says there is, is not blessed are you if others revile you or persecute you or, or insult you. No, he says when. It, listen, if you follow Jesus, you're saying, most likely I'll be insulted, I'll I'll probably lose my reputation, possibly cost me financially. I'll get sneered at. Right? Jesus is saying, you follow me, you will take on those reactions. But I do want to make two quick qualifications just about that. The first one being that Jesus is clear here that we're blessed when we're insulted on his accounts, not on our accounts. Right? That blessed are we when we're insulted because of Jesus, not because we're just mean or a jerk or we're just not very nice people. Right? Only because of Jesus are we, we blessed if we're insulted. But second... And this is, this is the one I think probably more important for us. Second, we've been promised insult and sneering and the culture generally thumbing their nose at us. And Jesus tells us how to react to that. And it's not to complain or to speak badly against the, the world in which we live, to, to speak ill of the culture in which we live. Here's, what he, here's our reaction we're supposed to have to our insult and persecution. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? In a culture where increasingly Christians are more maligned for certain views we have, that's okay. Rejoice in that. It's your difference. It's the way in which you're salt. It's not a cause to complain or to speak ill of those around us. Rejoice and be glad. This is the blessed life. Jesus said this is the blessed life when others insult or revile you because of your faith. And so Jesus, he's calling us here, don't conform to the world. You're to be salt, you're to be different through the insults. And whether that's you're a student in school and you face insults because you're a Christian, or whether it's, it means it's, it's hard to take a promotion at work because of what they're going to ask you to do, there's a line we draw where we don't conform to this world because then we're, not, we're, we're a salt with no preserving good, which is worthless and will be thrown out. So Christians, we don't conform to the world. Right? And so maybe we hear verses 11 and 12 and we think, oh, I don't want to be persecuted or, or I can't conform to the world, so I need to withdraw from the world. 
and get away from the, the dangerous realities of the world and be safe. And that's the second warning Jesus gives, which is don't conform to the world, but don't withdraw from the world. Right? That's why Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Right? Jesus is, is saying, listen, if, if, if you're a part of this world, you can't conform to it, but you also can't hide from it. You have to enter in. You have to engage. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian at the time of Hitler's rise in Germany, when the church was, was faced with great persecution, said this, which was a prophetic word in the midst of a church who was conforming and withdrawing from the world. He said this, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Right? No one lights a lamp and put, puts it under a basket. Because if we withdraw from the world... What Jesus says in verse 16 won't happen. If, if we have a lamp and we put it under a basket, then there will not be the occasion for others to look at our lives and give glory to God the Father on account of our life, on account of the good works from which he will work through us. All right, so Jesus, he says, don't, don't conform and don't withdraw. But what's interesting to me is, is even between verses 11 and 16, Jesus sounds almost schizophrenic here. Right, in verses 11 and 12, he says, listen, if you follow me, people are going to insult you. They're going to sneer at you. And in some context, you may, it may even threaten your life. And then a couple verses later, he says, listen, if you follow me, people are going to find it so compelling and winsome, they're going to want to become Christians. Right, I mean, th this is a tension here between persecution, right, insult, sneering, and also people who love what is in your life so much they become Christians because of you. Now, how do we understand that tension Jesus is speaking, speaking to well, one example that I, th I think was a really beautiful example of what Jesus is saying here is, is listening to Chinese pastors this past weekend where, where one of them, uh, in China, there's a, a significant shortage in, in, blood, in, in blood banks. Uh, where for whatever reason in Chinese culture, it's not a high value to donate blood. Um, and so the government has even forced government employees to donate love, the blood. The, the blood banks operate at dangerously low levels pretty consistently. And so that's one thing this church decided to do in China was to take their entire church to a local blood bank and donate blood. Which blew the, the blood bank manager away so much. He called the local newspaper, said, you've got to come out, you've got to report this story. It's incredible. And the, the newspaper guy comes out, sees the story, it blows him away. They write up a big article they're ready to publish to, to tell the, Chinese, the, 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 the city that, hey, look what, look what these Christians did to give blood and to donate and help our city. Right, that's, that's verse 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Well, the government caught wind of the story that was going to be published. And the government told the newspaper editor, you can't publish the story. And so now this, this little church has caught the eye of, of a Chinese government that is more watching them closely. And even though this didn't lead to a persecution in this instance, it's opened the door for at least the government to keep a closer eye on, on this church now. Right, verses 11 and 12, you follow Jesus and it's going to cost you. Now, there's a tension and I would say if you want to know that you're like, you are actually being salt and light in your community, in your neighborhood, in your world, then you have both things true in your life. Right? On the one hand, you have people who will insult you and, and, and revile you or sneer at you because you're a Christian, because you follow Jesus. And on the other hand, you have people who will look at your life and want whatever it is that you have. Maybe even become Christian because, because of you. Now, that's how you know you're living into this tension well. So do you have both? 
Right? If, listen, if people are only insulting you and never want to become a Christian of you, it's probably because you're not light. You're more like napalm blowing up in people's face. You're just a jerk. You're just mean, right? You need, you need to speak the truth, but you need a little bit more grace. Or if, if you only have people who like you and, and see your life and like it, but never, you've never been insulted or you've never faced some bit of pushback for being a Christian, then you're, you probably don't have enough courage. You need to speak the truth into the life of the community more. I think Jesus lays out a good test for us here to know whether or not you're living into this, whether or not you are salt and light, is that you have people who both look at you and, and sneer at you or insult you, but also look at you and want what you have. And so do you experience both? Have people wanted Jesus because of, of your life, what you have? Have people pushed back or insult, insulted you or sneered at you because, because you follow Jesus? You need both to be salt and light. To be the sort of person where if you were removed from your community, your neighborhood, your workplace, people would notice and they would miss the fact that you're gone. So Christians, we're salt, we're lights. Christians, we can't conform nor withdraw from the world. Lastly, what are we called to do then? What's the positive outflowing of this? And that is, listen, if Christians, if we're salt, then one of the things that means is that Christians, we're to run to the parts of our communities that are breaking down. Right? The, the, what happens, what do we tend to think when, when someone around us, their life begins to fall apart, or they begin to, to have enormous problems or enormous frustrations, we tend to, in those moments, say, I'm, I'm just going to leave. Right? I'm going to exit myself out of this relationship and come back in when it's a little bit less high maintenance. Right? But Christians, we have the exact opposite viewpoint. That when we see someone's life begin to break down or when we see decay, when we see something beginning to fall apart, we want to go in. Again, not because we have all the answers or because we're smarter. That, that, listen, that's just as unhealthy as running away from someone whose life is falling apart. But we long to enter in because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. Our life was breaking down and falling apart and Jesus came near to us. He didn't run away. And so we as Christians, we want to be a people who run to problems and not away from problems. So let me just ask, what, what is breaking down in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Whose life around you is beginning to fall apart that you want to run away from, that this text is saying, no, you need to go back in. You need to be salt. You need to be light. And I don't want to just, just think through that through an individualistic lens. It also has implications for us as a community, that as we gather all individual lights in Christ, we shine brighter together, right? We all are scattered out and our lights are in, in very different places through the week, but here we gather in a community, in a place. How do we gather together in a way to where we are lights to our community? Right? That what are the parts in our community that, that are breaking down that we could be salt and we could be light to? Transparently, I don't have a lot of answers to what that is specifically, but one, one thing that, 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 that I was just with this, about a week and a half ago was sitting with a, a community leader who was just speaking of some of the tensions that exist within Shawnee Mission schools. And that most of our elementaries in, in Shawnee Mission, Mission District, especially in North, Northwest high schools, is those, those elementaries tend to be very segregated by socioeconomic or race. So depending on what, what elementary you go to, that, you can tell what socioeconomic or what race you're a part of. And so what happens is all those, those middle schools or all those elementaries get together in middle school and all of, those, all of that separation is thrown into one pot together and there's just tension there. Tension that could lead to, to something breaking down or being difficult. 
And listen, I don't have any grand answers for what that means for us as a church or what that looks like or what we should do. I just know when I see that, especially when I see breakdown among people who are very different, I long to run in because the gospel is a healing force between different people. So no grand answers, no agenda, but how, where are the places in our community we could run in and be a blessing, be salt and be light because of who Christ is? So what do you see breaking down around our community that we as a church should run to together as a community? So we as Christians, listen, we run to what's breaking down, not away. And second, we're, we're people who shine light in the darkness. And maybe you're sitting there a bit overwhelmed, hopefully. I've been overwhelmed this week thinking through the application of this text, what it means, right? Thinking there's no way I could do this, there's no way I could be this. And if that's, if that's how you feel, that's good. That's probably how you should feel, right? A little overwhelmed, a little wondering how... How could I do this? Because ultimately the gospel is not about you and how smart you are and how much you can accomplish through your own wisdom and your own strength and your own brilliance. The gospel is a story about what God has done and what God is doing in this world, making all things new, what we sang earlier. And we get to partner with him in that work. And Matthew 11 through 16, Matthew 5, 11 through 16, listen, it's just a, re, it's a retelling of the gospel story, isn't it? That Jesus was persecuted and maligned and insulted even though he was salt who entered the world to heal breaking down communities, to heal breaking down physical bodies, even though he came to be salt, he was persecuted, even though he was light itself, announcing to those of us dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, there is life beyond the grave. He was still put on a cross, persecuted, reviled, insulted, spit on, Also, that he could go into the grave and come out and say to us, there is resurrection beyond death. There is a better story. There is hope there is a light shining in the region in the shadow of death. And the bottom line is when you put that story at the center of your life, when you follow Jesus, being salt and light, it's not a command. It's not a list of to-dos you have to live up to. It's not a lifestyle you achieve. It's who you are. It's who you are in Christ, whom you have been connected with. And it's why if you're in Christ, should you be removed from your community or your neighborhood, or your school, wherever you are, you should be missed. Not because you're smarter, more brilliant, or better. Because you're salt and you're light. And you have faith in the one who is salt and who is light. Right? We don't have faith in our own abilities. We're not better. We don't have better ideas. We're not smarter. We're not more brilliant. But as Jesus says to all, us all, if we come and we are united in him, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And the city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's pray. God, I pray that now for us as a church, that we would be salt to our community, that we would be a preserving force, and we would see the good and the potential and all the beauty of the place in which we live. I pray also we would be light. Announcing there's hope, this, this dark world isn't the last, the last word in our lives. And God, also we would announce truth, that we would be an alternate city within a city, a different place who announces the good news of Jesus with everything we have in us. So God, would you help us make that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways we respond as a church together is, is through communion. Right, it's here we're invited into a meal that Christ himself invites us to, or we're reminded it's his body broken for us, it's his blood shed for us, right? We are salt and we are light because he has invited us to this meal and we are united with him. 
So at Christ Community, we practice open communion, which means if you're a believer, <clears throat> we invite you to come. You don't need to be a member of our church to take communions. Uh, to come in groups of four to six, take the bread, um, dip it into the juice, and then eat it together at the instruction of, of the one serving you. And we have a gluten-free option available on, on this side as well. So we invite you to come, and as you're ready to come, but in this space, um, if you're a Christian, reflect on the invitation Christ has made to you, how he's been salt and light to you. And if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you just in, to dwell on the different worlds, the world Jesus announces and the world Jim Carrey announces. They're different places, and the invitation to you to join the world of Christ, to have faith in Christ, is ever-present through his body and blood broken and shed for us. So as you're ready, come.